Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey everyone, welcome to the 243rd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Matthias Kepler and Working with Lemons. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today, it's another Matt and Oren episode. We've been getting a really positive response from all of you about this, which is baffling because I'm sick of Oren. He must be sick of me. Uh, no, actually, I rather enjoy speaking to you, Matt. It's uh, oh, oh. the first time hearing that you... Ugh dislike doing this podcast i guess that was a hurtful statement i made at the top of the episode yes and uh do Ugh, not edit this one out usually matt is yelling and berating screaming at you yeah and then yeah, our yeah. editor sarah cuts all that out to make him seem nicer he has a little bit of like a public image issue right now some controversies and things so yeah well but this listen, is the real matt re, do re, not edit you it re put yourself you reput you so. Yeah, man. So yeah, we're going to catch up. We're going to talk about production design, art direction, the nature of collaborating with maybe my very favorite department head, the production designer, the thing that we haven't talked about a ton. So uh, I'm really excited about it. But before we do that, Oren, yes. what have you been working on lately? Well, 15 different things, 30 different things. A hundred different things. One hundred different things. Mm-hmm. No, just in in all seriousness, how many how many jobs are you on now? Right now, this week, I have two jobs in production, and then I'm in post on a couple of things. And I actually got asked to write a treatment yesterday, and I said, "Sorry, I can't write." A Whoa! Treatment. Yeah, hey, was, congratulations! Thanks. It wasn't like anything. I don't know. It it seemed like more work than it was worth, and I've just been really exhausted lately so it's okay but i have a really 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 hard time turning down jobs and saying no i assume you are the same yeah yeah and i don't mean job offers i mean job opportunities if someone was like hey here's a job do you want it it's a lot different than you'd be like yes would you like to pitch on this job yeah i think that we both are a funny mixture of workaholics and naive enough to think that we can make every single job better and also the cycles of our of our work are such that like when it's it's feast or famine and when it's feast like it's an all you can eat buffet go to go to town you know mm-hmm. get yourself some 
filet mignon and some lobster tail and yeah by the way Matt's even if you know the, has no idea what he's talking about right now i have no idea what, what what to eat at the buffet they're really a waste of money for me uh well i hope you're happy there's no more buffets in the world sizzler's out of business uh, because yeah. of covid yeah the, i really genuinely am not a big fan of buffets anyway so oh, i love them so the sizzler is like the best if you want to feed a child in a adult for twelve dollars all you can eat including ice cream i mean there's nowhere better there was nowhere better anyway yeah you're gonna eat seven dollars worth of ice cream i um, will tell you about a few jobs though that i'm kind of like in the midst of because they're why i wanted to talk about art so i had a shoot two weeks ago i think i might have mentioned on the podcast but had very specific art needs that were very difficult and i just felt like the way the agency and our and our team were interacting was not conducive to making good art. <laughs> and I honestly don't do a ton of jobs with a lot of very, very specific art direction. Um, and I always want to do more, but to get the really highly art directed, like the Wes Anderson looking stuff, you need to have Wes Anderson looking stuff on your reel. And I don't really have a lot of like highly precise art stuff, you know? And whenever I work on those jobs, I am reminded how difficult they are. And I just happened to have one that shot a couple weeks ago that was quite difficult. And then I have another one that shoots this weekend, actually Saturday and Sunday. That's just like a giant art job. And I'm just like drowning in it. And in the midst of that, this week, I had two shoots. They're for the same campaign, but they're kind of like influencer shoots. And the first one was with an LA based influencer. So we shot in LA, but because of COVID and because it's for this really big company that has really strict COVID regulations, we had to have a tiny tiny crew there was a seven person crew including talent including covid compliance officer and including a lifeguard because our talent was going to go into a four-foot pool which you know i did not think we needed a lifeguard for but uh we did because those are the rules so it was those three people plus me uh, an ad a sound person cinematographer and like Okay, maybe there were more than seven people. <laughs> maybe there were 10 of us. Um, <laughs> let, let, let me ask you this, though. Whatever that number cap was... Yeah, maybe 10 you, people. If, say, the lifeguard wasn't in that headcount, would you have gotten an additional camera person, for instance, or anything like that? Or would it well, just have been that your headcount would have gone down? Maybe. The lifeguard was literally... We were in our pre-production meeting, and we're like, yeah, so there's this pool there. And so we rewrote the scene so that the guy like jumps in the pool, four-foot pool, a very fit, healthy uh, young man. And then the AD is like, we need a lifeguard. And we're like, uh, it's a four foot pool. And they're like, we need a lifeguard. So we, and so we, ha- so we added the lifeguard on kind of last minute, which, so because of that, they didn't really affect our headcount because we already, like everyone else was booked. But if we would have allocated for the lifeguard, but so other than that, and then we had a producer. And so, and there was like a location person that came with the house that we filmed in. So, what you did not hear me list is any sort of art people. So the art team was me, the AD, and the producer. We were the art department on this shoot. What is, so a follow-up question there. You were the people doing the art on the day. Did you have a crew member doing the shopping and sketching and all of the other kind of the prep work, basically? So one of the producers did that. Did all the shopping. All the shopping was done on Amazon, more or less. I think we picked up some last minute things at like Walmart and CVS and we didn't have anything crazy because it was like, the idea is this influencer is purchasing a ton of things for their house, a ton of sports equipment. And so 
It was stuff that you can easily buy at like a Walmart or a Target or an Amazon. Right. It uh, wasn't specialty stuff. Yeah, right, but right. we but all the colors of these the sports equipment we bought was in the brand colors of the you know, the the company that was paying for this that we were doing marketing for. So it was stylized in a way and because the concept was that this guy keeps on buying more and more things and each scene we shot we were trying to add more things into the background and so like an exercise bike you know they're not like hard to get props but they're hard to transfer props <laughs> you need a truck right and so we weren't even going to have a truck originally but as the prop list kind of grew it kind of it grew but i i was pretty much the one that was deciding where all the art goes and, you know, you've been on shoots where it's probably pretty normal for you and the DP to decide, like, let's say you have a, sh- a scene that has police cars in it, right? And um, a car accident or something that has like five or six vehicles in it or 10 vehicles or however many. You're probably involved in where, you know, all those vehicles go. But if you are shooting, let's say, a living room, you're not placing every pot and every blanket and every pillow and every tiny little thing. And I was on that shoot. I was the guy that was like, oh, we can see those wires. Uh, I guess I'm going to go and plug those wires and plug them in here and let's tape this. And literally the producer, oh, this is another interesting thing. Uh, do you know what a Greeking book is? Yeah. So, But for listeners at home, a Greeking book is basically uh, like a big binder of stickers of different shapes and sizes and colors. And it's there to obscure brands or labels that the company doesn't want to appear in the commercial for whatever reason. So... This is the bat, the worst example, but say you're shooting a Coke commercial and they had a Pepsi branded refrigerator in the background. You'd open up your Greek book and then you would pull out the sticker that would fit the right size and match the color so that the Pepsi logo wasn't available anymore. Right. They might have like a blue rectangle that's the same color as the. But I mean, a lot of the shoots like these shoots that we did, because it's a, a, a couple of very big companies involved, like the production company was very big and the advertiser is very big. They just want zero brand names. So we had a grill in the background and it said like Master sure. Grill or whatever. Coleman or whatever. Yeah. Well, the the, uh, the thinking behind that also is that say, say you didn't Greek it, then all of a sudden Coleman is getting free advertising on this giant platform. The ad team is like, well, guys, I'm try- I was trying to get Coleman to sponsor us and then they just got a free placement and, and we bought the, the grill. This is insane. So I, there is some logic to it, you know. Yeah, so we call that Greeking, and it's right. Literally, your shoe has like a, a Nike logo on it. We'll just put a black sticker over it because it's a black shoe. Or we had this exercise shoes are bike. The, shoes are the things where I get mad about Greeking. Everything else, I'm I'm fine oh, with. The worst is the freaking Apple logo on the back of the, of the laptop. That um, that's fine because you can just put a stupid sticker there, and maybe it's character based or whatever. But everyone knows at, at, when you have everyone that round wears gray Nikes. Sticker. It's so it's so dumb. Shoes are so dumb. It really that drives me nuts. It's incidental and it's it's purely just some marketing knob being like, mm, well, what if we tried to smell Nike? And what's the deal with Converse? I don't think I've ever worked on a job where the wardrobe person wasn't like, and then we'll throw them on some Converse. Yeah, well, Converse Is, are great. Are you allowed to just wear Converse on camera? <laughs> they are the easiest to Greek for sure because the logo is a white circle with a star in the middle. And so you talk about something you've got in your Greeking book or that you can throw some some tape over frankly and just artfully mask out uh the converse are the easiest to greek of all apparel right i would say so this is like a perfect example of something that seems kind of trivial but also specialized that the art department and expensive yeah so how much do you think this greeking book costs greeking books are i i don't know the number but i know that it is 
surprisingly expensive. Three hundred dollars. Yeah, this yeah. is for a book of stickers. A book of stickers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three hundred. So I would love to see you buy three hundred dollars worth of stickers for your daughter and see how many you get. Oh, yeah, that's like a room full of stickers. Yeah, yeah. That Greeking book doesn't even smell like strawberries or nothing. <laughs> yeah, I didn't scratch any of the stickers, but probably not. So the the whole departure. Sorry for the departure about the Greeking book, but those are kind of those little details that the art department is taking care of. The art department also typically, the other things in their kit that they will have are things like saws, screwdrivers, power drills, all sorts of tools. Yeah, butyl. Wedges, butyl, yeah, yeah, and adhesives, dulling spray, all of which... They accumulate different colors of tapes. All that stuff is the stuff that you need tiny incremental things of. So, it, you know, they get maybe a kit fee if they spend a, a use a bunch of butyl or something like that. But for the most part, they're just kind of inheriting it off of other bigger shoots. And it's like, you know, they do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's no big deal. But for a producer to go out and buy everything that a, a, a regular old moderately experienced art person would have in their kit... You know, that's going to be yeah. probably $1,000 worth of $40 for some tape. Yeah, but we need six different colors. Yeah, it's crazy. So, And, and you need to be prepared with every... T- you, you've got 30 types of colors. You're only going to use one. Right. And the other thing is like, you know, like a lot of times you'll be standing at the monitor and you'll say like, oh, we have a glare off this picture. Can we kind of start rotating it? And you have somebody rotating that picture and you're like, okay, that's great. Go back a little. Perfect. What, what do you say when you... Oh, do you say woof? I don't know. When do you I say, I say, I say woof. Woof when you want them to stop rotating. And people, sometimes they will tease me about it. Um, that's yeah. just how I learned to do it. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's a USC thing. All the USC people I know say woof oh, really? and scout. Yeah. Can you just, I, don't, I don't say scout. Um, yeah. And wonky is another USC. Janky. 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 janky right. Sorry. Janky. Anyway. Or j- that's a little jank, which is quite annoying also. <laughs> um, but anyway, Sorry, but being the art department, I had to run and tw- move something and go around back to the monitor and run, you know, like all that stuff. And so I kind of had both extremes of the art department experience this week. L- let me ask though, was it a cinematographer that you work with regularly? Yeah, it's uh, actually the same cinematographer on all same, three for of both. these jobs. Yeah, yeah. so but you could have been like, for all three of them. hey man, you know, uh, I'm going to go fix this, get eyes on it, and then do it like basically where he, because he knows what you're trying to fix. Well, Did, did you ever do that or no? No, because th- those are the types of things where I'd be like, hey, can you tell me, like Yuki, do you see the reflection? Do you see here? But if it's more of like a, like that, I don't like that lamp. It feels like it's kind of sticking out of this guy's head. So I'm trying to move it a few inches to the right. Instead of me saying like, hey, I'm going to go over here and move this. Tell me when it's not sticking out of his head from your aesthetic like pleasure. I think he would be like, well, I don't know. What... It would just be a long conversation of me trying to explain to him what I'm trying to have him tell me. You know, So as a director in general, I'm very like hands-on with props and art and things like that. Because I find it faster sometimes than trying to verbalize what I'm saying. Sometimes I just am at a loss of words to explain my aesthetic displeasure with something. And we're describing uh, under, under normal circumstances, we're talking about teeny tiny tweaks. You know, you're, you're like, it's not something that needs a ton of help. You're clocking things a tiny bit. You're scooting them a little bit here and there. You know, it's they're They're things that you kind of just need to fidget with basically. Yeah, but when you have an art department, like a lot of things that we were moving on Monday were 
plants like oh this you know this side of the frame feels kind of empty but let's move this plant in so we just see a few leaves on the edge of frame but <laughs> it's like an 80 pound plant you know and so here i am like trying to drag it and then run back to the monitor and like you know and we were shooting a lot of handheld too which is the worst for framing things up because by the time i finish moving the plant i'm like oh it's not in the frame i keep moving it and then you know the yuki will be like oh i was trying to frame it out i didn't realize you wanted in like Anyhow, the point is, the art department I've grown very reliant on, and when I had to do it myself, it was hard too. So basically, those are kind of three big art things. This thing I'm doing on on Saturday and Sunday, I, I can't probably say what the brand is or kind of what the big concept is, but I can say that it is um, going to be the longest uncut shot I've ever done in my life. It's going to be one shot that lasts for 17 days, 24 hours a day. I I don't know that you're going to beat that record for it. <laughs> yeah, yes, but, and it's a big but, uh, but it's not true. It is going to You're be... You're not rolling for 17 days. No, but we are trying to create the illusion that we have 17 days worth of footage and we're going to shoot it all in two days. And a big part of how I'm thinking to accomplish it is obviously replaying some clips, but also looping things. So we'll have a character come in let's say he sits down and reads a book, I can have him read the book for a minute and then I can loop it for 10 minutes, right? And then have- Are you going to have him, he'll he'll flip pages super fast like Johnny Five and then you slow it down? Well, you're a joke, but one of my pitches was like, what if we shoot on the Phantom? You can shoot like (laughs) 10,000 frames a second and then we'll shoot for an hour and we'll have all the material we need. There you go, you're good to go. But they're like, but what about all the scenes we wrote? Uh, Um, Or blinking. (laughs) Yeah, so- but part of um, the issue of, of looping things and then replaying scenes and having a character enter, then exit, and then enter again to a, a scene that you've already played before is you need incredible continuity of the set, right? If he moves a chair in one scene, he has to move it back to its original position before he exits the scene and comes back in in order for us to be able to cut to any scene. Are there any built-in body wipes or or ways to obscure the camera that would help help you out on this front well it's funny because all i do is pitch various body wipes i'm like what if every time this character enters he wipes the frame the 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 shot that we have set up is a little higher it's the camera is kind of impossible to do at like eight foot feet in height so i was like well what if the character sometimes carries like a pile of boxes or something (laughs) uh, (laughs) that wipe the frame and we also have this this element of a toy train that moves around the room at various times and I thought we should have it wipe the lens but it's all like very complicated and very 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 reliant on the art department to have everything be perfect in addition to having nothing move in the room well Oren I I think that there are going to be some cross dissolves that happen Right. right well so you know Adobe Premiere has this cut this thing called the morph cut which is it's a morph transition where it does little morphs so if you know a chair moved a little bit and you used it it might be imperceptible or at least it kind of tries to create the frames in between the two different positions what if there was a 17 day lightning storm you're joking you might be joking but I pitched that exact idea and they're like no why would there be a lightning storm I'm like, because the power can go out. (laughs) We can have a black frame. Stop acting like my transitional elements are not important. Like, literally, they're, like, doing me a favor. The agency is like, well, Orin wants to do these scenes where these 
the camera keeps getting blocked. Okay, I guess I guess we'll let Oren do the scenes. I'm like, are you guys crazy? This does not yeah, work if we don't do these. They just literally don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you should just have the main character take a photo. Like you should have like an old, like a Polaroid. Just anything to basically, well, we're joking, but just to make sure that people understand. Anything where you have uh, a full um, frame where like the the camera is wiped in some way would make any edit opportunity that would create editing opportunities so that those tiny things could would be less perceptible basically yeah i thought it could be fun if there's an earthquake every few minutes and then (laughs) things just shake around (laughs) anyhow Um, but anyhow yeah yeah but i guess i'm curious when you work on commercial stuff or anywhere any job where there's a client you as the director usually are the middleman between the art department and the client, right? Well, you know, I think, yes. Yeah. And I think there's an opportunity to kind of talk about this even in broader terms, because there's a few different aspects of collaborating with a production designer or art director, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes people don't like being called production designer unless you're like literally doing the schematics of designing sets and stuff. Yeah. Sometimes it's, if you're just a, you know, walking into a location and then, doing set deck sometimes they just prefer art director anyway the point is um there's a lot of different aspects of that collaboration that are really interesting and important to me do you i I, maybe i haven't talked about this on the podcast but in college we all had to kind of pick a discipline other than directing because the way that usc works is like you basically have to crew on a thesis film in order to pitch directing a thesis film and so I was I was in the the theory half of the school, not the production half of the school, but got to because there were so few people who wanted to be production designers that year, I took that thesis class. They allowed me to like step in and take it. And so I for a long time was a production designer in like college. Like I was asked to do all of the production design on all the different you know, big student films and stuff. And so really, I care about production design perhaps more than any other department. And it was a long time before I could really be able to take a step back and be less precious about it, basically. So you feel like you, you had to work your way up to being more, to trusting your production designer more. Yeah, 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 basically. Yeah, like they're, the designers all of the designers that I've worked with actually have gone on to do really awesome things. But like um, that first season of Squaresville, I'm like pretty darn hands-on and like, I'm really lucky that that designer like appreciated the collaboration basically anyway. But the point is, is all of which is to say there is the act of client management that a director has to do. That's a little bit more like producing than it is directing in a certain sense. You know, you're just kind of like, if you've got a really pushy agency, you know, at a certain point you're in the service industry and you're just not, you're just kind of serving their vision. And that can be really frustrating versus really collaborating with someone on a story level versus on a joke level versus just communicating, right? Like there's all of these different facets of what makes something good or not in our, in our eyes, you know what I mean? And so, I feel like in, in bossy pants, maybe Tina Fey talks about this with show running, like oftentimes 
you'd have like an art director come in and be like, I found the funniest cake for this scene. And so, like, and it's like six tiers and it's got sparklers on the top and stuff. And it's like, no, it just needs to be a, a sheet cake that Frank bought at the Safeway. Basically I'm rambling, but like communicating with your, your production designer and getting them finding one that has both a great aesthetic sense and also an understanding of what you're trying to deal with from a producerial standpoint and also then understanding from a character standpoint. That is the holy trifecta, I think, of of skills I'm always looking for in an art department head. Yeah. Well, so how do you... So you did, you know, that Halloween thing recently and that Mountain Dew thing not too long ago. Who sets up what the set looks like and what the props look like? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, on the Mountain Dew job, uh, it was with um, Caitlin Williams, who we both work with pretty pretty frequently and Mountain Dew was funny because it was um it was a crew of all of my favorites you know it was people that I'd worked with for years and years it was really fun um and so in that case you know I think it's Caitlin was there on the the scout I was like we were pretty quick in terms of collaborating back and forth via like Pinterest and Dropbox and sharing tear sheets and and swapping ideas and conversations but she also has my treatment which has a lot of those ideas already present in it but then you know on the scouts we're throwing out ideas and like in that one in particular we ended up shifting from a very practical from a location basically to a soundstage based off of some lighting design ideas that made it we had to shift to a soundstage basically because of those and that happened in real time on the scout basically and she was happy and also really stressed because the job was not the job was bid to be a location shoot and all of a sudden it was a build yeah well let me tell you no matter what caitlin tells you or any other production designer 99 times out of 100 the production designer prefers to build a set than to shoot on yeah i mean it, it was purely budget basically it was just like it was it, there were a lot of conversations of like what sort of flooring can we like are we going to see the floor are we going to see the ceiling do we need these windows you know there's some pretty big gags in those spots there's a guy who like bursts through a wall that's all done practically because i'm a maniac then we're crafting rubber weapons and like i said like the flooring i think was the big question mark there it was like do we how do what sort of floor do we need basically yeah um that's the worst paint production designers are always saying like are we going to see the floor which is a totally valid question because on many in many shots you don't see the floor <laughs> medium shots you almost never see a floor really only see the floor in like really wide shots unless you're like someone sitting down or you're angled down or whatever but i'm always so afraid to say no we're not going to sure. see the floor well and i'm sure people at home are like well who cares? Just point at the floor. But if you're in a soundstage, A, they're disgusting. And B, well, we were trying to avoid it, right? Remember, like, this was a, the, the budget was, and the other set was, like, way, way, way more expensive. It was, like, scaffolding and, and all of, like, I can't remember. It was, like, 40 different Astera tubes and stuff. It was going to be awesome. So it's, like, well, maybe you can just paint it. Or, like, do we have to paint the psych back to the color that it was? What sort of damage are you doing to the flooring? how much is it going to cost to repair all of that stuff? Um, which, which is kind of really, it segues into the the point you were making before of like, sometimes these decisions feel very simple and it's easy to Google 
Home Depot, you know, uh, sectional floor and like just kind of slap them together or whatever. And then you're good to go. And that's what, you know, a person could think sometimes, but there are so many other aspects of getting those raw materials to the location and what you are pulling a person off of in order to get that done. And that's, that's the thing that I struggle with the most. And I'm sure production designers that I work with also struggle with me in that it's really easy for us as like civilians to say to the production designer, Oh, you know what I just thought would be cool is if we had like a bunch of plants, um, you know, like on those shelves in the background of that location or whatever. And they'll be like, uh, okay, yeah, we'll see about that. And then you go on like homedepot.com or whatever, and you start picking plants and you start sending them links and you start doing that and you start kind of trying to shop for them. And I think that's really frustrating because when you send your art person, just like random links of things they can buy, like you think you're helping them, but really you are like kind of changing the way they work <laughs> for them. And they have to either say, no, I'm, I'm going to do it my way. Or they just have to do it and you're kind of ruining their flow. And I think a lot of people don't understand that part of the the art department, directing department relationship. I, I think that plants are, is a really perfect example of something where you can say plants and think to yourself, oh, I want a fern. And they can think, oh, okay, they want a, a palm frond, like a palm bush or something. And those are two drastically different plants, right? And so I think that very quickly you just have to start having conversations. And ideally, you know the name of the plant or at least can describe its height and like leaf color and is it reflective or not. You know, sometimes, you know, like a, a fig tree can be like really reflective and sometimes that can be a bummer or whatever. Does it have to be real? Does it not? But so like the quicker you can start engaging in those conversations and as a result, I think you end up learning terminology and the aspects of, you know, the different like home decor and things like that very, very quickly. So actually one of the things that I like to do with a production designer early on is explain where these characters shop, because I think that that as a guiding principle, it's a lot easier to just be like these characters shop at urban outfitters or CB2 you kind of get it pretty quickly. Like, is it bohemian? Is it modern? Is it upscaled? Is it downscale? Those sorts of things. So you kind of have to learn your own way of communicating with someone so that they're honing in as quickly as possible with what style of art you're looking at, whether that's a plant or furniture or anything else, you know? Yeah, it's tricky. And I think in advertising, it's like just way more difficult because you don't have the characters in the story that you would have in like a narrative thing, you know? So like in a narrative piece, you can say like, well, you know, this character, she, she lives in this house that she inherited from her parents and it was built in the seventies. So everything kind of feels seventies in it, you know, and she bought a few things, but she doesn't have much money. So she has her microwave and her like TV and everything else is old. And she's trying, she goes here and her door doesn't work. And that's frustrating. Like in a commercial, it's like, well, uh, you know, Coca-Cola doesn't really like anything blue in the frame. <laughs> so nothing blue. Now it's, they want it to be aspirational. They want people, you know, people that drink Coke 
they're great, but they're not rich. You know, we did some t- focus group testing and they people were really turned off by rich people. You know, like if I had a dollar for every time someone said aspirational on a commercial job, especially when talking about art direction, but about anything, about locations, about wardrobe, all of that stuff, I'd be rich. So that was the thing that I think is is a little frustrating about uh, commercials is that it's always supposed to be the very nice but seemingly attainable version of someone's life, right? So like this this Mountain Dew job I, I just did at the before lockdown was like about gamers, and so we built this awesome loft for these Twitch streamers. And let's like, you know, it's like a little industrial, like I kept making jokes about Wayne's World 2, the loft that they live in in Wayne's World 2. But it's just kind of like that idealized downtown LA loft that you know costs like a million dollars. It's like, oh, you have the whole, this whole abandoned doll factory has been turned into this bohemian, you know, posh gamer palace. And they're both Twitch streamers where literally we know what their apartment looks like. They're, they've got a beefed up gaming. You see it on Twitch for six hours a day. They're on a card table in a, in a you know, two bedroom in, in the valley with white walls behind them. Yeah. It's crazy. Remember, you know, I did this five gum spot with Lily P2. She's like a Twitch streamer. And we were originally going to maybe have her shoot it herself. And then we're like, well, maybe we'll send like a two person crew to her apartment or to her house where she lives but her room is tiny and it's all white walls. And like, what's the point of us going to an all white wall room? But if we just build her walls that you see from her webcam on a stage and then there's, you know, the social distancing, we can get a bigger crew, we can do it safer. But part of the challenge was trying to build an identical copy of her room that was just much more cinematic, you know, more aesthetically pleasing. So it, it was, it's interesting. You know, one of the things is, lighting you you want to build it in a way where you can light the middle of the room and keep the light off of the sides of the room and in a white room it's hard because white you know absorbs a lot or bounces a lot of light back did you ever think about doing washes on the wall like light washes yeah because that's the other thing that i think of sometimes is like if if the room is big enough that you can get your subject and your background to be two different tones I think sometimes like a stylized wash can be a way to make a a wall look cool. Well, I guess we didn't. My approach was to try to make it look like her room, but with just slightly like less messy. I mean, to be honest, her room, anyone that sees her stream, there's just like crap all over the place. There's dirty laundry. There's things. That's what I was getting at. I love to, to mess up a set. I love to like make it feel lived in and like, on that Mountain Dew job, I during the show and tell, like client was walking around, and all of a sudden they were like, they got rid of all the dirty clothes I had on the bed, and you know, pizza boxes and stuff. I don't know. So to me, I, I find art like really hard. To be honest, I saw this. Uh, I went to the the premiere of Foxcatcher, the movie. Um, in- oh, I love that movie. I was just thinking of it. Uh, commercial director Bennett Miller, his second film. Exactly. So Bennett Miller, because it was the premiere, Bennett Miller was there to. Uh, present it. Uh, you know, my wife was in a Bennett Miller commercial. Oh, yes. I think our friend Avi was also in it for Nikon, right? Oh, that's With right. Ashton yeah, Kutcher, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, paid my rent for a year. Yeah, thanks. During the first recession Bennett. of our lives. Yeah, <laughs> genuinely. Thank Bennett, if you're listening. So 
the premiere we'll finally have you on the show but uh, <laughs> yeah th- thanks again buddy so the premiere was at the afi film festival and it was a year after it was supposed to premiere at the afi film festival so they actually didn't premiere when they were supposed to because he said he just felt like the movie wasn't ready yet and they spent another year in post on it before he premiered at afi and he said he kind of told that story he said you know you're just trying to get it perfect and he said to me directing is about taking that image in your head and putting it right next to the monitor and trying to get those two to be as close as possible to each other, which is a certain style of directing. It's like a very visual style of directing. I love that as a uh, idea. And I also tend to call bullshit on it a little bit because I think that that, and I know this isn't the point you were trying to make, but like there's, that eliminates the opportunity to be surprised or inspired by something that's happening on set. That to me implies that you like you have a vision, you wrote the screenplay or you read the screenplay and you storyboarded it all out and you, you figured out how to make it perfect and then you walked onto set to try to implement that perfect ideal. And that I disagree with. Yeah, I mean, I think people have their own way of doing things i mean like michael bay is famous for being opportunistic you know he'll have somebody set up a shot for like six hours and then realize like oh wait the sunset's amazing behind us let's turn the whole thing around and that's why his crews often are quite (laughs) frustrated with him uh but he's really good at just finding the opportunities and going for them and obviously he does some very calculated specific uh, explosive work but i think bennett miller maybe is a little bit more of um I don't know him or anything, but like I would guess based on his work is that he has kind of like an image in his head that evokes a certain feeling, maybe like a composition that's very symmetrical or that's very stark or that um, shows power relationship or something in his head. And maybe it's not exactly like what, you know, is exactly on the edge of frame, but more of just a feeling that he gets from that frame and he wants to look at the monitor and get that feeling from that what he sees on the monitor and maybe there's opportunities to be inspired but still get closer to yeah that feeling well for sure you can get inspired by performances and things but i guess um you know you i I doubt wes anderson like comes up with a ton of random like visuals on set you know so to me the art department is like that and you know you had mentioned the treatment like we show these treatments to people to get the job right and you know, one of the biggest tools to get a job is to show these amazing, amazing visuals in your treatment. The problem is a lot of times I'm showing images from a $2 million commercial campaign and now I have to replicate it for $200,000. And of that $200,000, like 30000 is going to the art department. And they already have to get me two cars, build a set, rent the stage, do that. Like, so by the time we get to like props or painting or, um, you know, the color of, the scenic work or whatever it's like we have no money and no time and no labor left and so now i've set my standards to this two million dollar commercial and we have a tenth of those resources and i find that it's hard for me to feel like fully satisfied you know what i mean and it's and i'm and i i'm trying to find a way to get jobs without pitching things that are totally ridiculous for the budget well i i hear you a hundred percent and I think that there are listeners at home who are thinking to themselves, well, yeah, I could buy the, you know, $6,000 couch for my set and put everybody in, you know, $1,000 sweaters 
and all of that, and maybe it would look a little bit better, or I could go to Target and get the lamp that looks almost as good and light it really well, right? And I think that that mentality is right on and it is true. And like, you know, if you look through either of our work, our very favorite spots, I guarantee you there's a lamp from Target in the background of any of them. Yeah, right? that's my signature move, the lamp from Target in every yeah, shot. Yeah, lamp from Target. Yeah, I'm, Kate, Caitlin does say, she always jokes that every um, every commercial the character is actually just a commercial for target because half of the set deck is from target. Right. That's like that tied super bowl campaign. This is a tie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but what you really, I think that the thing that maybe you're, you're frustrated by specifically recently is that you're a comedy director. And so oftentimes you hear a new joke or there's a new pitch for something and that, if it art is part of it, that's probably a sight gag. And so it's not just that you can go to, it's not cut to a character holding a funny lamp. It's cut to, you know, a character with a talking lamp. And then all of a sudden that's not something that was specked out in your job, basically. And you know, your, your team is now trying to figure out how to fabricate a talking lamp, you know, 36 hours before you guys shoot when they were originally going to be working on, a bunch of other things that maybe would make the aesthetics a little bit cleaner, right? Yeah, and guess what? It's going to be a pretty half-assed talking lamp if you have 36 hours to figure it out. I've told this story, I think, probably on the, the show before, but it bears repeating. I, I had done these cat food commercials um, where where kittens were going to college, and so we had we had fabricated all of these scale models of basically kittens like kitten scale models that were like as though kittens were going to like oxford you know or cambridge like a very like old world british dark like deep dark woods mahoganies we had like a rugby pitch you know it was that sort of vibe and the my production designer at the time had done all these really incredible mock-ups and stuff and we had literally every like model builder in town was working literally overnight to get these sets ready for us. And they were beautiful. It was incredible. And we were able to get a lot of um, American Girl dolls were basically the exact right dimensions relative to what we wanted for kittens. So we could like order lockers and all sorts of stuff. So it was kind of this perfect combination. And they also had like a really big array of um, the sorts of props we needed because we had a music class and then we had this and that anyway. So I had a, um, I was just so stoked. Most of this job is, is art, right? And the work is really, really good. I'm so happy with it. And there was a, um, one of the spots was about a foreign exchange student. And so, and I think this was my pitch even, I think that the whole spot was my idea. But, uh, and I was like, oh, we'll get a French bulldog. He'll be the foreign exchange student. How, what a great dumb pun that is. And we had a, a, like I said, it was British. So I had them build a double-decker bus, like the red, like, you know, buses you see, like in Harry Potter or whatever. And it was built to specific specifications so that the dog could be safely put inside without hurting it but also we could leash it to the thing and all like we had spca inspecting it all this crazy stuff and then the the day before the shoot the um the agency asked me to to turn the double decker bus into a single decker bus and paint it white instead of red and i i kid you not we ended up having to half of it ended up being foam core 
on one side. I literally almost cried. I said, you guys are making this less funny. And my voice cracked. Oh, yeah. I was so upset. I say that about a hundred times a shoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, man. Yeah. It, it's art department is just, it's just such a hard job. And like, it takes so much labor and nobody like these agency folks can just be like, oh yeah. And then, uh, and then his chair falls apart. Yeah, easy. And you're like, well, chair's falling apart. They're like, what's the big deal? You chop the chair up, you glue it with like glue stick, you have him sit on it, it'll fall apart. Perfect. You're like, yeah, but how is it going to fall apart? Like, I, I don't know. One of the biggest things you always, people are always writing random confetti explosions into things, especially in advertising, because it's like, oh, it's unexpected. It's a confetti explosion. And it's like, dude, getting a confetti explosion to look amazing on camera is actually not that easy a and b it's a real pain in the ass to reset after a confetti explosion it's just yeah i don't know i guess i'm just like going through a phase right now where i'm i am frustrated that i'm i feel like i'm sometimes letting clients down because we can't deliver the things that they want but the things that they want are totally unrealistic and i'm trying to find the tools that i can get ahead of the client desires and so one thing i've been doing recently is you know many of our listeners know is i've kind of recently gotten into blender the 3d rendering program and so i'm i'm trying to create the visual like literally the second i get the job i'm trying to kind of mock up the set and trying to kind of come up with camera angles and show them both to the well to the production designer to the cinematographer and to the agency so everyone is like on board with like what I'm going for and they can stop me before I go too deep because with art you can like you said you can just spend so much time I told you about that time we built the $15,000 miniature golf course that they decided to change the night before the shoot from golf to baseball and it's like well just so much labor goes into art that nobody appreciates and I find it frustrating and you and they'll compare it to like a two million dollar smuggler commercial or something and they they will ask why you can't do what they did. So yeah, I mean, I, it, so I think there's a couple things worth kind of unpacking before we we head out. A lot of what I think you're you're dealing with is like we all as directors, as filmmakers, it's the most important to us that the thing that we're making is good, right? I don't think that there's I, I we've never met a filmmaker in the five years or six years of doing this podcast that would ever be like, yeah, it was fine. I just I didn't care, so I just did the the easy thing i think that those people don't either they don't work or they don't exist frankly um so it's it's always the hardest for us because we want it to be as awesome as possible we also have the best understanding of what all of your collaborators are doing we're we're in it with them you know and so that's tricky i think the other thing that you're talking about is that as a comedy director if you do art art becomes a a part of the gag oftentimes and so that's funny art is really tricky yeah it needs to be executed perfectly it needs to be perfectly so actually this job i did last week the production designer i forget what we wanted we wanted like a giant painting made out of coffee or something i forget what it was but our the production designer said okay just so you know that's about 40 hours of design work to get that to look broadcast ready, you know? And then the producer's like, ah, okay, we'll find something else. <laughs> you know, because yes, it's going to take an entire one person working full time for a week to make this one prop for it to be good. 
Otherwise, it'll just be like crappy. Yeah, and I I think that a lot of the best arc directed spots that we have seen, the thing that's funny is the tone and the performance and the art direction is almost an afterthought. Or it's, it's just really make... focused. It's like, here's the yeah, visual yeah, yeah. gag and this is well, the what I, what I mean to say, it's in the background. And so the people who are working with you are paying attention to the things that are going to make it funny. And therefore, because there's not anything that's explicitly a joke, you can kind of like get away with dialing it in exactly to your vision without them interfering quite as much. But I think also the other thing that, you know, we keep talking about the producerial part of directing. A lot of it is just like setting expectations and digging in as quickly as possible. So I wanted to ask you about your your blender renderings are getting super duper detailed. I'm to call them blenderings. But yes, just to paint a picture for people, Oren is like he's got like a character and he's built out the set and he's lit it and all that. But it is not photo real. It's kind of, you know, in that sort of like early Pixar era of sort of like realism. Wouldn't you say? I guess certain things, the car thing you did was actually pretty darn photo real. But there are certain mo- the, the the less yeah the glossy, human shiny the texture are... human characters the, you know the um, fabrics things like that are are not as photo real as say a car is yeah I mean it depends like on this thing that I showed you my render recently like I found a lot of three D models online and some of them had textures some didn't some I had to make myself so like. It's like, oh, I found this amazing chair, but it's just a shape of a chair. So I just make it brown. <laughs> so that doesn't look photoreal. But then I'll find something else that has like all the, the you know, displacement and bumps of a fabric. So I have, it's kind of a mix of things that could look photoreal and things that are totally CG looking. So for your purposes and for anyone who's technical and understands 3D graphics in any meaningful way, you get that it's just effectively a, a drawing. Yeah, right? it's like it's like storyboards, I guess, in a way. I think it is a super, super valuable tool. I would be hesitant to show it to some people who maybe have a less trained eye because of the issue of it being kind of in that uncanny valley. Like, have you ever had people like look at it and be like, oh, wait, it's not going to look like this, is it? Um, I've had people... I mean, the response I get more is like, ooh, why don't we just do the whole thing in post? <laughs> um, but I do get like, wait, so is this the color the wall's going to be? And I'll usually say like, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> do you not like it? We can we can look at some other colors. And to me, it's like, or they'll be like, oh, I, I thought this, you know, all these mailboxes were going to be filled with mail, but they're empty. And I'll say like, oh, yeah, I didn't have time to put the mail in, but... But just literally that two-sentence exchange makes me know that this is something that's important to them. And if if I disagree with them, I'll be like, you know, but I actually thought it makes more sense if we don't see the mail because, like, this is a lonely character and he never gets mail or whatever. So I have found a, a lot of people are hesitant because, like, that render I sent you of this set for this weekend, like, our producer was like, I'm not going to show it to the agency. I just don't want them to, like, start asking me about, like, is this the chair? Is this the this? And, and I think to your point... It's like not fake enough. Like it's not storyboard level enough right. to. And that's what I was getting at is I like to show them storyboards 
they're black in black and white they're cartoony the board artist who's my favorite is a literal cartoonist Mm -hmm. you know mike who i worked with last week yeah great time right my favorite anyway shout out to mikey i either go storyboards completely cartoony and then the actual real real chair or whatever actual specific props i want like photos from the prop house from amazon what 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 are the things that we're literally buying and anything in between i i get pretty skittish about showing like i don't want to show some with wardrobe sometimes i'll show references but like well you know see i've had problems with that like today so we're so we're building the set and we want to have a fireplace in it and we have three different options of fireplace mantles that we can rent to build into our set so our production designer caitlin sent us three different pictures like these are the three i think are good for the set you know let's share with the agency and like their pictures that somebody took they walked to the rental place they took pictures on their iphone and they said the lighting is horrible there's all sorts of other crap all over the place they're kind of dirty you know there's like it's a fireplace so in the middle where the fire would go there's like a hole and there's other things that you can see through the hole and we shared it with the agency and they're like absolutely not these we hate all these fireplaces and I was like, okay, <laughs> this fireplace is perfect, but I'm going to have to Photoshop it. I'm going to have to put a fire in there in the hole. I'm going to, we're going to paint these bricks that are part of the fireplace. So I'm going to paint them in Photoshop. I'm going to add these other elements of decoration around the mantle like we're going to do. And then I sent it back to them and they're like, oh, okay, approved. Even though it's like a total, it, it is that uncanny valley type of thing. But they just, sometimes those pictures, it happens with wardrobe all the time too. You send them a picture of wardrobe that's perfect but it's not in good light the actors aren't wearing makeup everything's Mm -hmm. they're frowning yeah and they're like yeah "Eh, she doesn't look good in that you're like well yeah because the lighting's bad like everything ours will look better just so i don't know i i find that like the more i can what's nice about doing it in 3d is i can look at camera angles also and i can start making my shot list out of those angles and i can discover new things not on set but on my own time so yeah it's a ton of work but i i find it helpful for part of my process but but at the end of the day like with my rendering for the set for this weekend i talked to caitlin i was like look obviously i'm just downloading 3d models off the internet and arranging them in a room i know you're not shopping these things but let's look at this and and to be fair though that's obvious to caitlin because she is a person who works all the time that's not obvious to everyone right yeah and some of the things like that if were... you explained like oh this is how i'm like i go to a library and i pull these 3d models and then tweak them a little bit and some of them have textures and some of them don't you're probably over people's heads already yeah but that's neither here nor there because i think in general it's an awesome thing that you are doing what i'm really trying to get down to separate from your process is the way that one communicates not just with client and agency, which is the thing that we've been focusing on a lot recently, but how you communicate with all of your department heads, basically. You know, and I think before we wrap up, just kind of thinking about uh, the relationship with the production designer outside of a commercial agency client relationship where you do get to dig in a little bit more on character and, and things like that. And where you are the final say, right, a little bit more, or maybe an EP or something, but somebody who is not preoccupied with, you know, a product specifically. Right. Or a client. How does yeah. that, 
or a client yeah yeah basically just like we're not worried about making this seem aspirational um how does that change your approach to communication and oh it's totally 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 different well first of all you know we try to find the we try to let the character in the story lead the approach uh, obviously kind of the stuff we were talking about but also to me it just totally changes my relationship between me and the production designer because in that place let's say i'm working with caitlin or whoever i will say like hey this is what i'm thinking what are you thinking and we'll start kind of building things together and she like oftentimes like the production designer will totally change my whole thought like they'll pitch me an idea that i like better than my own idea and i'll and we'll do that and it'll be awesome and we'll be working together to build this thing together which when i'm uh, the interface between the client and the production designer it's totally different because i actually have to like stop the production designer from coming up with ideas that are too different from what i've already told the client that we're doing because if i change anything too much it sets into motion this series of dominoes that just everyone gets freaked out like well we told them it was going to be yellow curtains and now you're saying they're going to be blinds like oh what are you going to yeah, do yeah. you know so i have i have lost confidence from important people because of decisions like that before. Yeah. So it's, um, I, I mean, I, that's why people love narrative and that's why people like directing and being the final say, because you get to collaborate and make, you know, for lack of a better word, art together. And you're, you're really building on each other. And that's like, that's just like the dream relationship, you know? And that's why I think, you know, when you're making a movie or a short or something, you get to do that together you're still dealing with the limitations of budget and time and labor and uh, all of that though, you know? So I think that, right. But you're on the same team. Uh, you're, you're on the same side of that coin of like, well, here's the budget, here's the labor, here's this. Whereas when you are servicing a, a customer, they want to get as much as possible for as little money as possible, you know? Yeah. I think some of that, I think you're maybe your recent, experiences are coloring that a little bit you know i think that i think that that is certainly true but i think that oftentimes if everyone is on the same page from the get-go i think that there's still room to kind of enhance and and grow based off of those seeds it's just it's when you want to make a hard pivot that then things get really tricky yeah. And then and then you have to not just fall in love with an idea but then sell other people on it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that yeah. and that's yeah. It's but but there are always stake there's always stakeholders. Do you know what I mean? Like if you were, you know, in a session where you're like going through magazines and like talking through Pinterest boards and all that stuff with your production designer and then you you're like, "Yeah, instead of a hot tub, this is going to be an Olympic-sized pool now." Awesome. What a good idea. And then you go over to your your cinematographer and you're like, hey, we got to change it up. And you go to your locations manager and you're like, hey, we got to find a different spot and all this stuff. People are still pissed at you. Like all they're like, well, great. Well, I don't have enough light now. You know, I, I expect this for, you know, a hot tub, not for an Olympic sized pool. We're going to need X, Y, and Z. You know, there's there's still going to be people who are pissed at you, basically. And so I think that, yes, you're all doing it because of character motivations. And so ideally, we're all aligned that that's the best thing to do. But if people disagree with you, they disagree with you. And that can be 
a pain in the butt from any stakeholder. Yeah, I guess I think as a director, like if you're changing a location because of something you figured out with a production designer, then like you go and you say to the DP, hey, we had this awesome idea. Like, what do you think if we do this instead of this? And you go to the producer and you're like, hey, how hard would it be to change this location? You know, you can you can kind of do the politics of it. But it's much harder with the, doing that with the agency and the client, I think. I think you can do that with agency client that tends not to be as feasible just because, you know, there's a couple gatekeepers there. Yeah. And there's a, oh, we already sold this idea through or this was already approved or legal already said you can do that thing. Well, I don't know, man. Please. Yeah. yeah I'd love to hear from our listeners about like kind of how, like if they have any tips or strategies of how they work with the art department. Like, I don't know. my Like my dream is just to have millions and millions of dollars uh, go to the art department so we can just build crazy worlds but until yeah. then I, you know I, I like a location i like a location too yeah i mean we can build crazy worlds on location as well <laughs> you could do that that's true that is true yeah well uh if you have a crazy uh production design art direction story leave us a voicemail about it i'd love to hear some some stories from the trenches from all of you uh listening at home or in your cars and probably no other places, I hope. Yeah. Um, and maybe we'll have some production designers on the on the podcast. Yeah, that'd be a, that'd be a treat. Uh, drop us a line at uh, 262 shoot one. Yeah, that's the number. 1262 shoot one. And uh, yeah, we will respond. Hopefully. I will respond. Hopefully. At some point. <laughs> I, I've been responding to more lately. Yeah, I know. But, uh, we're uh, responsive in bursts, but we love all that. We read everything. We listen to everything. Just know that if you send us an um, email or a message, we did get it. Uh, we will try to respond. By the way, if you're a $10 patron and have not received your hat yet, it's because our hats are on their way. We just had to reorder them, but they you will receive it. I apologize for any delays. But yes, we love to hear from you. You guys are awesome. Before we end the episode, I would like to... See if you're cool with uh, making an unpaid endorsement. Unpaid endorsements. I got a couple, actually. One is for you, specifically, Oren. Mm-hmm. Listening. Came up because of our conversations about body wipes. Do you know the film Rope? The old Hitchcock film Rope. Oh, yeah. Uh, ten 10 minute takes that are seamlessly cut together. Stringed That's together, correct. perhaps. String to ooh, look at you, look Ropes, at you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it's a, such a treat. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I'm sure it holds up. Uh, but yeah, it is uh, infamously the uh, the oneer Hitchcock's oneer basically. And he there's a few really funny uh, opportunities where he does like a body wipe to like stitch together the scene so that it all feels continuous. Yeah, um, I heard he ripped it off from 1917. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, such it's fun because the the wipes are so overt that I like. I remember watching it with an audience in film school, and there were a few edits that got actual laughs out loud. Oh, um, but it's I actually it's, might have never seen it, so I'll check dude, it out. It's it's super fun. It's like really it's it's delicious. Is the the way to describe the movie? It's like you know, it's got all of the best things in a Hitchcock movie. It's got a little bit of suspense. There's some foul play afoot, um, but yeah, it's really fun. You you would enjoy it very much. Yeah, and it's a fun fun movie to untangle. Yes, hey, hey. Uh, my next one is the show How to with John Wilson. Do you know the show, Warren? I don't. 
I don't even know John it's, Wilson to be honest. Uh, me neither. Um, you you wouldn't. One wouldn't. <laughs> um, he is a um, kind of an introverted documentarian. Um, this is the new HBO show, executive produced by comedy legend and my personal hero Nathan Fielder. Oh, cool! And it is. It's it's like found footage isn't accurate because basically this John Wilson has been you know shooting things for years and years and years in the second episode he shows like his wall of like dv tape and videotape and stuff so he's just got this insane archive of just small found moments in new york city and then they're kind of strung together through like a thematic idea and voiceover but it's it's really quite charming and funny and strange and sad and like explicitly New York city in a way that's really great. And also because we're still not really getting out very much. Um, it's like a nice brush of fresh air to be reminded of like what it is to live in a city that is alive. And it's and a so, comedy. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's firmly a comedy, but it is quiet and melancholy and a, and a, effectively about john wilson you know teaching people and learning how to be uh an effective human being it's really interesting it's fun yeah and my last one is a a short on short of the week called emergency action plan that is really great it's by uh it's a dark comedy by a director slash writer slash editor slash star dylan redford and it's um really interestingly cut and he seems like a pretty unique weird voice um and it is about about a person who becomes obsessed with what to do in an active shooter situation um and what his emergency action plan would be but it's kind of about a lot more than that it's about like radicalization and like you know the way that corporations are trying to deal with shooting and like i don't know it's it's uh, there's a lot to unpack but it's strange and funny and dark all at once so is there any zigzag um, running in it uh yeah actually there is oh awesome you know that's my yeah plan right if somebody starts <laughs> um, tries shooting at me it's the sure. zigzag yeah 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 um the important learned that from all of the to... first person shooters you play right you duck as well and you jump and you kind of strafe left no. and right as you move. And it's just a theory. If somebody was shooting at me and I had to run away, I would run in zigzags. But you have to make sure your zigs and your zags are different lengths to throw them off. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You would be very good at first person shooters, Oren. Thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so that's all I got. Awesome. Um, what you got? So do you know what a trance line is? Uh, yes, I do. And I have only had bad luck with them. <laughs> Uh, but for the listeners at home. Yeah, so a translate is a backdrop that uh, is semi-translucent, and hence the trance part of the thing. And you can light it from the front or from the back. And I guess I didn't really realize this until recently, but if you light a translate from the front, you let's so let's say Mad Men, right? That's a perfect example where they use a ton of translates, right? Whenever they're in the office and... John Hamm is looking out the window at the city that is not a real city. It's a backdrop that's hanging on a soundstage. It's a giant, giant printed photograph of a city. And if you light it from the front, it is that city during the day. And if you light it from the back, 
and is that city at night? And so the semi-translucent places are like uh, windows, for instance, and streetlights and things like that. Basically, I imagine they printed on some sort of like Luma curve where the brighter a pixel is, the less, the more transparent it is. Well, that's what you something would like think, that. right? But Oh, ooh, boy, unpack it for me, but Warren. But then let's say you had a backlit city during the day, so the sky would be much brighter than the buildings. So then at night, you wouldn't want the sky to be much brighter than the buildings, right? And there wouldn't the window lights and the buildings wouldn't be on during the day. They would be the same color as the rest of the building. So basically what you do, and again, I only... So, so two things. One, I wanted to talk about how they work, which is you actually give them two identical images uh, from the same angle, same shape, same everything, except one of them is the daytime image and one is the nighttime image. And usually the best way to do this is you work off a daytime image and then you Photoshop it to be a nighttime image. Um, but you can't, like for instance, I wanted to do have a moon in the nighttime image and not a moon in the daytime image. And they said that would not work because you have to have the same shapes, um, just different brightness and color. Uh, so Wait, wait, because hold on, you're giving them two images, but are they, they printing them onto the same fabric? Is that what's happening? So... Yeah, they print the daytime one onto the front and the nighttime one onto the ah. back. And so... And it's a stencil, so gotcha. Yeah, and it's a semi-transparent material, like a plastic-type material that when you light it from the back, this image you print on the back is kind of telling it where light can pass through and where it shouldn't. And on the front, it's just showing the image that's printed on the front. Now, you, now, also, by not lighting the front, it's darker, right? Because there's less light on it. And it effectively makes the scene feel darker as well. So I thought that was really fascinating because I didn't realize that you were literally giving them two different images that line up on each other. And uh, we'll post a, a link. Like, there's this uh, website, pacificstudios.net, that has, like, a bunch of translates you can rent and usually they're, they're quite big, like 16 feet tall and 40 feet wide, like a giant, you know, so you could have an, build an entire house set and the entire one side of the house faces this translate and it's a forest or it's the neighbor's house or it's a pool or whatever the it is. The thing about translates, the reason that I always have a negative feeling towards them is that you never have enough room. You're either you're seeing off the edge or you don't have enough room to light them properly. Right. So like, you need to have, you know, typically when you're building a set, you know, you go ahead and put one wall pretty darn close to that fire lane, basically. Or like, you know, maybe a couple yards off of the fire lane so that you could put some lights back there and blast light through and it's no big deal. But if you want to translate out that window, you need to give yourself enough room to create distance both between the window and the translight or the backdrop or whatever to make it feel appropriate so that things fall off. And so you have enough room to light it from the front. Right. Or from the back. And so all of a sudden a wall that you'd put pretty darn close to one edge of the studio is 30 feet off the wall. And if you want to do that on say a wraparound set, which is what I tried to do last time and it looked bad. So we just turned the lights off (laughs) Um, then yeah, you need a ton of room. Like I'm looking like a real jackass. I'm looking here at some that you can rent. One, this one, it's a cityscape. It's 20 feet tall by 63 feet wide. So can you imagine how much stage area that takes to have a 
63 foot long, 20 foot high backdrop. First of all, just hanging it is, is quite difficult. It's heavy. Just transporting it is, is quite difficult. But then you need enough lights to, to light both sides of a 63 foot wide thing evenly. Yeah. So anyway, but the second thing I wanted to say is that you can make custom translates and they're actually quite affordable. <laughs> so we are printing ours. So we have on the set that we built that we're going to shoot this weekend, we have a quite a big window. It's four feet wide by eight feet tall. And then outside of that window, we want to see uh, the exterior that it, this house takes place in kind of like a foresty type environment. So we want to see the forest. And so I found like an awesome photo on one of my favorite websites, pexels.com, totally royalty free. You can use it for anything commercial or whatever. High res photos. So I found a photo of a forest and I then Photoshopped a nighttime version of it for the back. And we're going to print it to be 10 feet wide by 12 feet tall. Uh, which based on my blender renders allows us to have 10 feet between the set and this translate. But it's a really small translate. It's only 10 feet wide. Uh, but that's all we need to cover this window. So 10 feet by 12 feet, it's 120 square feet. And uh, you can print a custom translate for $18 a square foot. So it's under two grand, which I know might sound like a lot, but we're going to own this thing. Like we could sell it or rent it or give, I don't know. It's like to... To have anything you want outside the window, if you're doing a TV show, a web series, like something where you have like, you know, it, some issues with windows and you want to just add like another layer depth or realism. Um, it's I, I thought it was I thought it was going to be like ten thousand dollars to just even start talking to someone about printing a translate. And it's not. So anyhow, pretty great. Are you layering in um, kind of mid ground elements in between the. Yeah. So we're going to have um, window a few fake trees and then we're also going to have some characters just doing crosses. And then also you can do window trees as, as well. Right. So you can like have the, the curtains can be semi-transparent or like sh you can have shears as part of it as well. All of which would be a heck of a lot harder if you were doing a green screen. Yeah. I'm trying to avoid green screen at all costs because uh, my shot is a 17 day long shot and I don't want to do 17 days worth of footage uh, VFX on that chat. So fair enough. Awesome. Well, Oren, this was another great conversation. Um, just you and me. We're gonna have a couple new guests coming on soon, but uh, but it was a uh, good to talk about art and the nature of collaborating with agencies. Yeah, and we'll have a production um, designer on at some point. So if you have uh, topics that you want us to cover, we've been getting a lot of good feedback recently about what to dig in on. So um, drop us a line at justshootitpod at gmail .com. Or, or you can hit us up directly on the internet. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlo on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and we're at Just Shoot a Pod across all social media. Yeah, I'm at O Kaplan on Instagram. I'm at Smitey Pileg on Twitter. And we are very excited to hear from you. This episode, by the way, is edited by Sarah Weirda. Our social media master is Derek Aiello. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And thanks, everyone. We will talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. 
Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.